The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Nicole Nachtman was excited to begin university in Tallahassee, Florida, mostly because it meant she'd finally be free from her mother's authoritarian parenting. Little did she realize, no amount of distance could ever break the ties that connect a mother and a daughter. Join me now as we examine a case about a young woman who spent the first 20 years of her life trying to live up to her mother's unattainable standards. A case where you'll be left to determine whether the tragic outcome was the result of a calculated killer or a fragile mind being pushed to the edge. Nicole Nachtman was born to Miriam and Ronald on February 11, 1994 in the state of Texas. Unlike so many children born into similar circumstances, Nicole's life was destined for a rocky start. From an early age, Nicole witnessed her parents' failing marriage, with the couple arguing daily, many of the fights escalating to physical violence on Miriam's part. The turbulent relationship came to an end when Nicole was only three, after her parents divorced. It was then that Nicole's mother sought to take advantage of the Texas family court system, legally alienating Ronald from his daughter. Miriam claimed he was abusive, citing irresponsible behavior that made him unfit to be a parent. By 1998, Miriam succeeded in winning full custody of Nicole, and Ronald was legally barred from seeing her until 2015, when she would be of legal age. What followed for Nicole was a period of unending instability, while Miriam moved from home to home no less than 16 times, causing Nicole to enroll in new schools each time. Throughout the never-ending cycle of relocations, Ronald gradually lost track of his ex-wife and daughter altogether. The constant moving also made it close to impossible for Nicole to ever form any sort of lasting relationships. Her only real sense of companionship, coming from her overbearing mother and her brother Joseph, an older half-brother from her mom's previous marriage. With few family members living close by, Nicole and her brother Joseph came to rely heavily on each other for support and happiness. Miriam held the very lucrative job as a reserve naval captain and was a tough, no-nonsense kind of woman, holding her children to the same degree of discipline as her subordinates. She always provided a roof over her children's heads, made sure they were well-fed, got a good education, while pushing them to be the best version of themselves. But sometimes, Miriam's tactics were high-handed and would later be argued as abusive. What may have worked on the Navy ships wasn't working for Nicole and Joseph, who, like most children, could have benefited from a softer, more nurturing approach. Nicole's meek nature was in need of a mother who could provide her with emotional support in a comforting home atmosphere. Instead, Miriam was emotionally unavailable, 
always pushing her children to pursue an unattainable standard of excellence, with the goalposts constantly changing. Picking out their flaws in hopes of improving her children for the better, Nicole and Joseph were left feeling like nothing they could do would ever be good enough for their mother. A style of parenting that possibly stemmed from Miriam's own upbringing. The only girl in a household with five brothers and a dad in the military. But the tough love approach that may have worked in parenting Miriam as a child was having the opposite effect on her own children. Instead of toughening them up, Miriam's approach to parenting was tearing her children down, stripping them of their self-worth and confidence. Growing up, Joseph tried his best to protect his little sister for as long as he could, shielding her from the worst of their mother's disappointment for several years, but there was only so much he could take. At 16 years old, Joseph had enough of feeling like he couldn't measure up and moved in with his grandparents in Tampa. It wasn't until Nicole was about 12 years old that her mother's state hopping finally came to an end and they settled in Tampa, Miriam's hometown. It wasn't long after Joseph left for Tampa when Miriam married Robert Deans in Virginia, a former auxiliary police officer. Nicole finally had a chance to stabilize herself, living in a permanent home for the first time, closer to other family members and enrolling in a nearby school, hopefully long enough to make new friends. Although things now seem more settled for Nicole, she still faced her mother's overt controlling style of parenting, leaving little room for Nicole to ever gain her own emotional experience and develop a sense of autonomy. At one point, Nicole was sent to attend the Florida Air Academy in Melbourne, a boarding school geared to prepare students for careers in the military, something Nicole decided she'd like to do one day possibly in hopes of pleasing her mother. When Nicole was 17, her mother rented an apartment for her so she could be closer to the high school she was attending. Miriam thought a bit of independence would do some good for Nicole. It didn't last very long, however, and Nicole ultimately wound up moving back home, where she would remain until university. But Miriam's imposed expectations didn't cease. If there was something Nicole was worrying that she didn't like, she wasn't shy about expressing her disdain. If Nicole wasn't understanding a concept taught at school, there was no hesitation in letting Nicole know she was a failure. Unlike a lot of children, when they enter into adolescence, Nicole's overall demeanor began to change. The formerly bright and energetic young girl who loved to dance withdrew into a more quiet and reserved teen, filling her time with new hobbies and interests. One of those interests included the art form of Japanese animation, characters she came to relate to in her own life. In Nicole's real life, she never seemed to feel like she could measure up, but in her imagination, she could be someone else. In 2013, Disney released their feature film Frozen, a loose adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. The movie tells the tale of a young princess named Anna on a journey to lift a curse inadvertently placed on her kingdom of Arendelle by her older sister, Queen Elsa. It's a story that runs on themes of the importance of family, accepting differences, chasing dreams, and redemption. The theme of differences is projected fiercely throughout the film in the bitter character of Elsa, who feels isolated as the result of her gift 
or what others view as a curse. A box office hit all around the world, Nicole fell in with the fray of fans, connecting specifically with Elsa's character. In fact, it became an obsession that would follow her right into university. As Nicole grew older, Miriam's criticism began focusing heavily on her daughter's appearance, body shaming her, focusing her to get liposuction twice and laser eye surgery, procedures Nicole was terrified of getting. But when Nicole pleaded not to undergo the various treatments, she confided to a psychiatrist that her mother scolded her, calling her a selfish bitch. Not wanting to create further waves, Nicole opted to go along with her mother's wishes. When she was in the 10th grade, Nicole reported that her mother pushed her head into a table because she didn't think her handwriting was good enough. In the 11th grade, Nicole said Miriam kicked her in the side for allegedly walking like a man. A break from the harsh criticisms finally came in 2013 when Nicole graduated high school and enrolled in Florida State University, moving into one of the dorm rooms. It was there she met her roommate, Jacqueline Roman, the first to experience Nicole's fascination with Elsa and some of her other eccentric behavior. Right off the bat, she remembered finding it strange that Nicole never had help moving in from any of her family members. After settling in is when Jacqueline started noticing what she considered odd behavior with Nicole. In particular, she remembered one time finding her roommate asleep on the floor in the hallway. When she asked her what she was doing, Nicole replied, I'm just taking a quick nap. She also noticed Nicole keeping a nocturnal schedule, up late at night playing video games on her laptop and sleeping during the day. When she wasn't playing video games or sleeping, she was designing Elsa costumes to wear, purchasing Elsa-themed children's merchandise, such as purses, pens, makeup and shoes. She even went so far as to dye her hair platinum blonde. Two outsiders looking in, Nicole's obsession with Elsa only seemed to intensify as time went on, with more and more screen time spent dedicated to writing deep and complex fanfiction over the Snow Queen and publishing it to online forums. It was inevitable that her grades would begin to slip as the freedom and peace of her liberated lifestyle began to get the better of her. But Nicole wasn't only neglecting her studies, she was also neglecting her personal hygiene. Anyone who entered the dorm room would immediately be caught off guard by the scent of body odor, resulting from Nicole only showering once every few days. She also rarely brushed her hair and almost never looked in the mirror at herself. When she wasn't wearing her Elsa attire, Nicole wore the same set of plain clothes every week, piling on layers before going out, despite the regular 95 degree temperature. On top of not paying much attention to her personal effects and hygiene, Nicole wasn't especially the most organized student, often leaving her stuff scattered all over the dorm room, a trait that Jacqueline felt was inconsiderate. Although some of what was characterized about Nicole was definitely unusual, a lot of what was described about her wasn't. Young adults living away from home for the first time quite often take advantage of the newfound freedom and it could be argued that Nicole was doing just that. Nevertheless, Nicole had a difficult time forming any real close relationships in university, really only one, a girl named Laura, 
who also shared a common interest in Japanese anime. As time went on, Jacqueline would come to learn other things about her roommate. Living in close quarters meant she was privy to overhearing phone conversations between Nicole and her mother. To Jacqueline, it often sounded like Nicole was under Miriam's thumb. Despite being a grown woman, living four hours away at university, she also noticed that Nicole never seemed overly enthusiastic about going home for the holidays. She always seemed to make up excuses to stay back at the dorm. At one point, Nicole confided in Jacqueline that her mother had forced her to change her major from history to public relations, citing a lack of career paths in history. Nicole admitted she felt her mom wasn't satisfied with the person she was, and always tried to force her to become someone she wasn't. As Nicole withdrew even further, she soon began to abandon her schoolwork altogether, hiding her poor grades from her mom by altering the reports before showing them to her. Then, in 2015, Nicole went on a class trip to London, England, funded by her mother. A long trip, interspersed with moments of fun and tedious schoolwork, Nicole really seemed to enjoy herself. The young woman, who had avoided mirrors back in university, was even taking the time to do her hair and wear makeup, a sudden change in behavior. After arriving back to Florida, all the students were exhausted and keen to getting some much-needed relaxation. But not Nicole. She was sent into a flurry of agitation after realizing she'd missed the deadline to apply for student housing and was placed into overflow housing. The late fee to apply was $100, money Nicole didn't have. Terrified to ask her mother for money, and even more afraid to admit she'd missed the cutoff date, Nicole began to panic. As the other students were coming down from the exhilaration of their European adventure, a darkness was beginning to cloak the inner workings of Nicole's mind. And just like that, Nicole suddenly disappeared. After abruptly leaving the dorm, Nicole didn't return until several days later, late on the night of Friday, August 21st. Petra Henry, another student who was just moving into the overflow housing at the time, couldn't help but notice Nicole bundled up in her bunk in a thick blanket, murmuring to herself, looking upset, and as if she'd been crying. Petra asked what was wrong. Nicole told her new roommate that her mother had been in an accident of some sort, but refused to give any more details. She told several students that if anyone asked, she'd gotten back the day before on Thursday. Two days later, detectives showed up, unexpectedly. 21 years old at the time, Nicole was immediately placed under arrest, charged with the murder of her mother Miriam and her stepfather Robert. Police called her brother Joseph, who by that time was stationed in Seattle with the Air Force, letting him know about the murders. His first concern was for his sister, afraid of how she would handle the news, but his worry soon turned into complete shock when the police informed him that Nicole was their prime suspect. But Joseph held out hope it wasn't true and called Nicole in jail to speak with her, letting her know that family would be rallying around her. On the call, Nicole sounded strange, even melancholic and in a soft voice told him, I shot them. I shot mom and Bob. 
Joseph would later mention how Nicole told him about screaming voices in her head that had manifested not long after her trip to England. The voices were so unnerving, they disrupted her sleep, torturing her with their unending agony. But according to Nicole, they finally subsided once her parents were gone. Nicole was jailed in Hillsborough County and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and was denied bail. It would take four years of careful evidence gathering before Nicole's trial would begin. Leading up to the trial, Nicole was seen frequently by a psychotherapist appointed by Nicole's defense team, Dr. Kathleen Heidi. In her interviews with Nicole, Kathleen attempted to build a mental profile in hopes of understanding what went wrong and whether or not Nicole was even fit to stand trial. Surprisingly, Nicole seemed to be doing extraordinarily well, despite being jailed and cut off from the outside world. During her times with Kathleen, Nicole appeared enthusiastic and outgoing, frequently telling jokes and rambling on about anime and other cartoons. In fact, Nicole was so jubilant and talkative that it disturbed Kathleen. Was this truly a young woman who had murdered her parents? Throughout the time it took to put the case together, all the evidence and testimonies slowly fell into place. By the time the trial date finally rolled around in the summer of 2019, the evidence painted a very grim and depressing picture. Hillsborough Public Defender Julian Holt was set to defend Nicole against the prosecution, who claimed this wasn't the act of a battered child, but rather that of a calculated and cold-blooded murderer. During the trial, evidence came forward in the form of testimonials from various people who had wandered in and out of Nicole's life over the past several years, including her roommates Jacqueline and Petra, her brother Joseph, and even Nicole's long-estranged father, Ronald Nachtman. On August 19th, 2015, Miriam and Robert were found dead at their home, both with fatal gunshot wounds. Robert was found bundled up in a thick comforter in the house, a bullet wound through the back of his head, while Miriam was discovered lying in the driveway, having suffered similar injuries. The room Robert had been discovered in had been locked from the inside, suggesting the killer had fled out through the bedroom window. Neighbors had testified to having seen Nicole opening a bedroom window earlier that evening and then later hearing popping sounds and a scream from the home. A close cousin revealed Nicole had arrived at his place that same night, begging for money, claiming she needed it for school. The cousin happened to have some cash on him and gave her the money she requested. Nicole herself had confessed to her actions serving as the clinching testimony to her downfall, admitting to hearing screaming voices in her head when she returned from her class trip. It was around that time she'd also learned she failed to receive housing at FSU. Terror had gripped her heart at the thought of what her mother would say and what she'd do. During her interviews with Nicole, Kathleen learned about the childhood she'd experienced, a lifetime of disappointment disgrace and humiliation at the hands of a woman who Kathleen believed had rendered Nicole's mental state to that of a child. Kathleen made note of Nicole's disorganized, harried speech 
and the unusual childlike tunnel vision focus she had on the Disney character Elsa. It was in her opinion that of the 12 known characteristics common in children who murder their parents and who have been severely abused, Nicole exhibited 11. Kathleen believed Nicole was unstable and used the evidence from her interviews to present a very damaged, psychologically abused young woman who lived in fear of her mother. During court proceedings, Kathleen elaborated on the young woman's fractured, disjointed way of thinking. What she told me was basically she's in this state of, of panic. She talks about should she tell her mom, and she's kind of thinking that she'd tell her mom, and her mom, she somehow thinks that her mother can fix this and that she's saying, well, she'd tell her mom and what she's concerned about, as she says, is that her mom will say to her, sweetie, you can tell me anything. And then she said, I'll tell her what happened. And then she uses the expression, I'll sing like a canary and then mom will talk me out of the gun and then she'll shoot me. Nicole had murdered Robert after Miriam had left for Jacksonville on August 18, 2015, shooting him with his own 38 caliber pistol. Only after attempting to clean the house with bleach did she receive a very important email. Nicole learned she'd been accepted for campus housing after all. However, she'd already shot Robert. Kathleen described Nicole's mindset as panicked struggling to hide the evidence. As Nicole waited for her mother to return home, she suddenly had cold feet and attempted to flee before encountering her mother. As she crawled out of the window, Nicole suddenly ran into Miriam in the driveway. It was then that Nicole shot her. She's having this kind of thinking process with herself. Then she's surprised. She hears her mother in the house what she reports and it kind of caught her off guard because she didn't expect the mother and she panics because now it's that moment where she could talk her mother in or whatever and she says she panics and she goes out her I believe it's her bedroom window and she takes the gun because she's afraid that her mother as she reports will shoot her she runs to the, what I presume is the front of the house where the driveway is. She runs unexpectedly into the mother. Apparently the door of the house is open. Her mother may have been in, but she runs into her, the, the mother. The mother says reportedly again, excuse my language, what the fuck are you doing here? And Nicole said, and she shot her. And I think she said her mother screamed or yelled or both and she shot her again. Nicole's capacity to comprehend her actions was discussed. Following the two years after the murders, Nicole still believed her mother was still influencing her life somehow. And you said no, she knew what she was doing. She knew she was shooting people, correct? I think she knew that she had a gun and that she was shooting them, yeah. And then your quibbles with the consequences were, what is the, what is, what is the immediate consequences of shooting a person? Well, normally, you would think with a rational person that shooting somebody would lead to physical harm, 
um, possibly serious injury or death. When I was looking at consequences, when I got the reviewing the jury standard or the jury instructions, I was also considering, did she consider the seriousness of this offense, appreciate it? And that's why I said, if I take into consequences, and I already testified, she had no understanding of how serious this was. And for almost two years, she kept thinking that her mom, in fact, even longer than that, could influence the outcome, which kind of leaves me wondering, again, did she quite get, her mother was dead, and it was, I have it right in my notes, and it's in the report, when she finally said, my mother is dead, but still kind of thought her mother somehow could impact the outcome. So that makes me kind of think, does she really get this whole thing about consequences? Kathleen also admitted that while Nicole's case wasn't nearly as severe as other victims of battered child cases, she currently wasn't on medication to help treat any underlying illnesses she may have had. The prosecution psychiatrist, Dr. Emily Lazaru, had a different opinion. Physical abuse and discipline are two different things. Discipline implies that there was something wrong done that then physical discipline was used in order to correct a behavior. Whereas physical abuse is just abuse that's happening to somebody regardless of anything. And that's sort of a distinction that I make when I look at these cases. In this particular instance, and why I didn't characterize this physical battering as that was because each one of the instances that I discussed with Nicole, each of them had an inciting event and then there was something occurred from that. Then I look at the, the sequela of that in terms of physical um, and as was brought up earlier in terms of radiographic evidence, if there was some physical evidence of a battering. And in none of these cases was that described to me. There was no evidence of that. No one else on the outside could see it. Not to say that every child that's been abused has physical evidence of that abuse. But that's one of the things that you look at. Was there any bruises? Did you have to receive any medical attention or anything in relation to those instances? And in none of those instances was that the case. Doctor, how would you describe Ms. Dean's parenting? I believe she was a strict parent in some ways in the sense that she had high expectations for her children and she was pursuing excellence with them. Do you believe that Ms. Deans wanted the best for Nicole Huntley? Yeah, I don't have any doubt about that. Emily brought up records of Nicole's behavior when she was a teen, particularly during her time at the Florida Air Academy. What I observed in the records were that there were some current concerns about multiple different things, bizarre behavior, not getting along with others. Uh, not fitting in, not remembering other kids' names. There were 29 other girls in the squadron. She didn't know any of them. You know, that type of thing. Um, I don't think that her dress was always appropriate. I think she had some problems there. She just had some different likes. The teachers, you know, said that she, you know, liked to shock people, some of her different likes. So that was another thing. It was She had some odd likes that maybe other kids her age did not. Is it common as well, Doctor, when children go off to college and they don't have a supervisor, parent figure to tell them you need to do this, you need to do that? Is it common that sometimes uh, these people will fail to clean up, especially if they're already by nature sloppy or messy? Is that common? 
That's totally common. I have uh, a lot of my patients are in college and college age, and that's actually one of the things that I talk with them about from that transition because you go from a time where your parents are sort of controlling everything you do and your school schedule is so laid out. You go there, you go to school all day, and then you come home. That's very different when you go off to college because now you're living on your own. You sort of can do what you want. You can eat what you want. You can dress how you want. And then your classes are sort of, you can go if you want to or not. I mean, Florida State University is a big university, so there's a lot of students. You can get lost in the crowd there. This was nearly the diametric opposite opinion to Kathleen's observations of Nicole. Kathleen did mention that she believed much of Nicole's abuse had stemmed from emotional mistreatment rather than physical. If I'm able to quote from Joe's interview, clinical interview with me, he said his mom's way of motivating people was to point out your flaws. So that is certainly consistent with psychological abuse. And then another example, and this is partly why Nicole is, as I would say, as immature, underdeveloped, is that she wasn't allowed to grow up or to individuate. So what we, you know, with kids, when they get into adolescence, they test boundaries, they want to become their own person. And Nicole was not allowed, or at least her mother had a great deal of input in terms of how she dressed, also about her major when she got to college. And what Joey related and certainly consistent with what Nicole said to me was that she didn't have the ability to stand up to her mother. So her mom is not allowing her to become her own person to individually. So she basically gets into this thing uh, or this pattern, basically, of doing whatever, like a child, doing what her mom said, basically not growing up, not questioning, not making waves. She is desperately seeking her mother's approval. And the sad thing is that she can't ever seem to get that. She's never good enough. One time when she broke down sobbing, I'm never good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. It's like she can't get there. And part of that is because she experiences that the guideposts in a way keep moving. And the, the best example of that is the weight. When many would argue she didn't have a weight problem. And yet at the same time, her mom was saying, well, she ought to be... 110 pounds, and then according to Nicole, 105, then it went to 100. So that's what I mean by the goalposts moving. Mom didn't approve of the way she was. She wasn't kind of a frilly type of girl. And Nicole felt very uncomfortable about her body, and that was a result of her mom's wanting her to be other than she was. Kathleen was also questioned about the childish outlook Nicole presented, particularly in regards to the length she went to in order to trick her mother into believing she was succeeding at school. With regards to where you were indicating that going through Nicole Notman's childlike character uh, and that her inability to function because she still was functioning in a, in a childlike capacity, correct? You, you were discussing that earlier, correct? Her perceptions are those of a child, are more childlike, yes. And it was, your, correct. And it was your opinion, doctor, that she would not be able to function in, in college in, in that capacity because of her childlike ability. Well, when I saw her, she was very impaired, and so it was clearly very difficult. And when I saw her, remember, she's in that 
severe state of, of mental decompensation. So I could not imagine, and I've never seen a student functioning like that successfully in college. Well, let me ask you, can a, can a person with the mentality that you're kind of describing uh, doctor a transcript with Photoshop in order to mislead the mother? Yeah, and again, Counselor, um, this is very important, and I really appreciate the question. There is a difference between personality development and intelligence. And I'm not saying that Nicole was not intelligent. I'm saying that her way of perceiving the world and thinking is like a child not wanting to get into trouble. Nicole's biological father, Ronald Nachman, also took the stand, recounting how he'd met Miriam while she was in the middle of divorcing Joseph's father. She became pregnant with Nicole just three months later. He described a tense and sour relationship with her, covering several instances of physical and verbal abuse. Ronald spoke of the bitter custody battle, ultimately culminating in phony police papers and losing custody of Nicole altogether. The trial was the first time he'd seen his daughter since she was five years old. As he remembered how he cared for Nicole when she was a baby, in the time before he lost custody, his voice cracked and he teared up. So you were present when Nicole was born? Yes, ma'am. And that was February of 1994, correct? Uh, that was February 11th, 1994. And that was in Texas? Yes, ma'am. And I moved back to the house. You moved back in where Nicole was living for what purpose? I, uh, Nicole and I slept in the sunroom and I took care of her every day. So even after you and Miriam Deans broke up, you all set up some type of um, caretaking schedule where you were taking care of Nicole every day as a baby. I took care of Nicole every day by myself as a baby in the sunroom. And until what age did you care for Nicole? I, I um, moved out of that house into my, my two-bedroom apartment. I had a nursery and a two-bedroom apartment. And she lived with me, solely lived with me until uh, January 7th, 1995. I took care of her almost every day by myself. So she was almost a little less than a year old for the first year of her life is when you cared for her every day. Yes, ma'am. After the jury was shown over 400 crime scene photos, Dr. Lazarou presented her diagnosis for Nicole. In her opinion, Nicole had an avoidant disorder, adjustment disorder, and borderline personality disorder, all-encompassing stunted and flawed portions of her personality. These disorders resulted in Nicole feeling nervous, highly introverted, and an overall lack of self-worth. But the testimony that stood out among the rest was that of Nicole's brother, Joseph. For all of his mother's faults, Joseph described what he thought was the reasoning behind her behavior. He knew she could be strict and demeaning, but at times, it genuinely seemed to come from a place of love. In fact, Joseph confirmed that one of Miriam's biggest priorities was making sure that he and Nicole were in good school districts. And that was the main reason she wanted you to move, was because of the school district. Was that object to leading? No, it's just rephrase. Was it important to your mom that Nicole be in some good schools? Yes. Because she wanted, did she want her to get a good education? Yes. It was clear that Nicole was leading a dual existence of struggling to find out who she really was, while also trying to rise to Miriam's expectations. 
going back to um, the situation how, how you indicated um, she would tell us, say, don't tell mom. Yes. And you said a couple of times she said that. Did you find that particularly strange? I don't want to say strange. Um, the reason was strange. I mean, she bought she bought a sword from a Renaissance fair and took a significant portion of the money that my mom was giving her. And so she called and left a voicemail saying, don't tell mom, uh, just tell her you bought the sword if she calls and asks. Okay, because she didn't want her mom to know she was spending money on things she should be spending right. money on. Right. Okay. But like, um, for instance, uh, did she break her computer one day? Yeah, her laptop. And what did what did your mom do when she found out she broke her computer? <laughs> Bought her brand new laptop. Bought her brand new laptop? Yeah. The court was also played a recorded call between Joseph and Nicole from jail, where she clearly describes feeling lighter and less stressed. Just to put it in context for the jury, after she's arrested, she's at the jail and you're getting ready to go back and you actually conduct a jail face-to-face -face visit with her. Yes. And she's now in jail charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the death of your mom and Bob. Yes? Yes. And this is the visitation that comes right before you're going to leave. Yes. How are you doing? Pretty good. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm somewhat helping me three times a day. Uh, I, like, I have no problems looking in the mirror. I actually weighed myself and I wasn't even scared. I, you know, I have problems with eating beer and stuff, and I, I've been able to, my head's been clear, and, you know, no stress, no anxiety, but uh, able to uh, sleep better. The trial had lasted two weeks, and the prosecution concluded by arguing that Nicole's sole motive behind the murders was her fear of admitting she'd missed the housing deadline. Defense, on the other hand, argued Nicole had suffered a psychological breakdown as a result of the years of abuse she'd experienced and didn't fully comprehend her actions. Finally, the jury retired to deliberate and took only 12 hours to come to a conclusion. Nicole was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Miriam and Robert were laid to rest together by surviving family members. Many who worked with the couple and knew them well were left grappling with a mix of emotions, saddened by their loss and confused as to how this could have happened. Loved ones are left to wonder if the tragedy could have been avoided if Nicole had been diagnosed and treated earlier in her life. For Nicole, the end of her journey is unclear and her options limited. It can only be hoped that one day she'll be able to comprehend her actions and find the support and healing she needs to overcome a lifetime of feeling unaccepted.
The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com dot au slash g e I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness.